Welcome all you weirdos, Krakoans, and anyone who's ever been called a little short for a stormtrooper. Many Bothans died to bring you this, your landmark 40th episode of The Weird Dose of X, the only X-Men podcast that is also a member of the Weird Science family of podcasts. I continue to be Jason, and with me is Ruben. Ruben, Ruben, how the heck are you today? I can say I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. It's, um, the sun has returned to Seattle. My team won over the weekend. And your team of, all of-, of what now? <laughs> My soccer team. Oh, your soccer team. It's yes. like the team you root for, the team you, you play for. No, no, no. It's the Sounders. I just have to talk oh, about okay. I see. how great they are. Mm-hmm. They're I, doing pretty excellent. You know, I've been watching a little soccer myself recently. Okay. It's kind of a lie. I've been watching a soccer anime recently. Watching uh, Blue Lock. Oh, is that good? It's it's pretty good. It's it's uh, a crazy, weird anime manga take on it where the idea is that Japan has great on defense, great on teamwork, but they don't have that single powerful egotistical striker to take control of the game. I see. So yes. they get like a hundred of their best young soccer players together, and it's, it's basically like a death match against each other to see who's going to be the one person who comes out of this to be the next great striker. Yeah, that's good. I'll, I should check that out. It might hit completely unrealistic, but that's probably why I like it. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. I mean, I always wondered if um, I would have enjoyed uh, Prince of Tennis more if I actually played tennis or knew anything about tennis. So this would be an opportunity for me to get a sense of like, well, does playing the sport make a sports manga better? Well, who is our big Prince of Tennis fan out there? I know there's someone in our uh, our Slack <laughs> it's chat. Me. It's me. Oh, it is you. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, let's switch through there. I got me. <laughs> Anyways, X-Men. Anyway, X- oh, right. We are still allegedly an X-Men <laughs> podcast. Uh, no real news this week, as far as uh, I could find. At least there's a lot of, you know, the solicits coming out, but I'm still hiding from all the solicits. I don't want to know anything going forward. I want to take it week by week, issue by issue. And this week, we only have the one issue uh, that we're talking about. We're talking about Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants number two, also known as Sins of Sinister Part 7. No Hope. Uh, it's written by Al Ewing, art by Andrea DeVito, colors by Jim Carolampadis and Rochelle Rosenberg. I think at least one of those has blocked Jim. Letters by Ariana Mayer and design only by Jay Bowen. Now, yes, there's a little bit. If you paid really close attention to this issue, you may have discerned. This is one of those so insights subtle. you'll yeah. only hear on this podcast. <laughs> I think Al Ewing was, had a little bit of Star Wars going on in the background while he was writing this. Yeah, uh, he might have he might have been familiar with that property. He had he had a good time. I mean, t- already the title "No Hope," right? It's not a new hope. It's no hope. It well, I'm I don't know if Jim will put in the ding sound, ding sound every time we get to one. But there's lots and lots of Star Wars references. Uh, so I'm I'm going to start off by talking about the the roll call. You know, every X Men book has that one page of uh, you know here's the cast of characters, and we usually skip that. But this one is kind of interesting. So the roll call here is Storm. Destiny and Mystique, no surprise there. Then Ironfire, who is that new Araco-based mutant we met last time who could make his metal blood into weapons. We get Korra of the Burning Heart. Now, next is X-Man, which is a weird callback. This is Cable, blended with what was left of Xylo, that Iraqi historian made of worms, right? He was kind of reduced after Judgment Day and somehow they merged together. And it's a strange choice of name as X-Man usually refers to Nate Gray, who is the version of Cable from the Age of Apocalypse. Now, I'm not sure why they went with this, because Cable doesn't do a whole lot this issue. Maybe they're setting something up for year 1000, but that's what they're going with. Next, we have uh, Ghana, or Ghana, 
This is her first appearance. She's part of Storm's Brotherhood, and she has electric powers. And again, she doesn't do a whole lot here. Uh, and finally, Novar. This is a complicated character. Are you familiar with uh, with Novar here? Actually, I am. Yeah. So I was reading Guardians of the Galaxy recently. That's another like cosmic pet team of mine, and I saw a lot of her uh, appearances. I think it must have been Ewing's writing. I've gone reading out of order, so I don't remember which. The era. one in this book is, seems to be a seems to be a fella. He's got a, a beard and mustache, at least. Got it. Okay. No, I'm actually getting mixed up. Oh, you're thinking of the other Nova? Yes, the female Nova. Okay. This is Novar. He is a character invented by Grant Morrison, who was the lead character in a miniseries from the year 2000 called Marvel Boy. Long, complicated, Grant Morrison story short, Novar is a Kree soldier from a dead alternate universe, and he has had cockroach DNA mixed into his own DNA to make him into a super soldier. All right. Why not? Uh, Grant Morrison here. He's also a member of the Brotherhood, and he's much older than we usually see him because, hey, we're 100 years in the future. So I don't guess they're not calling him Marvel Man. That would be confusing. So those are our characters. And we open with the big old scrolling text, ding sound, right out of Star Wars. And even like the, the content of the scrolling text is very Star Wars, talking about, you know, we have a, a scrappy bunch of, of rebels fighting against this you know, strong, powerful empire. And, and here it's interesting because in this book, the compact, which is that group of alien civilizations, comes across differently than it did in Immoral just last week. In Immoral, we're told that the compact was kind of falling apart, soon to be crushed completely by the red diamonds. In Storm and the Brotherhood here, they still seem pretty powerful. I guess it's a matter of perspective, right? I mean, to the, the packs, the compact is losing as it be gone in 20 years, but to a scrappy bunch of rebels, the compact is still really formidable. Yeah, that was how I read it. I, I assume that when you're on the offense and you're crushing the compact, they don't seem like much. But when you're, you know, a team of five people, anything that's more than a team of five people seems like a, a galactic power. Make makes sense to me. It kind of threw me off at first, but I thought, yeah, I guess just from different perspectives that works. Uh also we learn here, I think this is the first time we learn that Orbis Delaris is the leader of the compact. I don't think that came up anymore. I don't know if, if no. uh, they know about that. No, but that, again, doesn't totally shock me because we had Sinister being introduced to um, the idea that one of his clones or is, is even around, right? Like, he right. didn't seem to know that. So it doesn't shock me that the uh, Diamond Faction wouldn't entirely know what's going on. It certainly makes makes sense in context. And what we learn from this opening scroll is that a small team of rebels has captured the plans to a powerful enemy base. Another another thing we've seen before. Ding sound. Okay, so the first part of this story is about Destiny's return. Destiny shows up all alone at Arako Base, which is this space station that serves as Storm's secret headquarters. Uh, now, Destiny not only knows the current authentication code, it's an old code, but it checks out. She knows the next one the code that hasn't been decided on yet. So that's proof it's really Destiny. I thought that was kind of cool. Now, Destiny is here because what Hope's logbook told us last week in Immoral turns out to be true. Mystique is really dead. It seems that she was part of that team that captured the plans of that enemy base, but died in the process. And we're told that that team is called Freedom Force, which is another team name that's a, a callback to their Chris Claremont 1980s. You read those Freedom Force stories at all? I haven't. Well, back then, it was the name used by the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants when they were working for the U.S. government to enforce the Mutant Registration Act against the X-Men. It was one of those times Marvel always does this where, oh, powers are outlawed for a while, 
and then they team up with the bad guys to enforce it against the good guys. It's yeah. Devil's Reign. They did the same thing, a common thing. But at that point, it was Freedom Force, uh, and Mystique and Destiny were both on that old Freedom Force team, including like Blob and I think Magneto. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was the eighties. The other members of this new Freedom Force team are Mystique. We've got a member of the Nova Corps who looks like a fairly young woman. Is that who you you think you're yeah, familiar exactly. with? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So okay. she showed up in Guardians. It must have been Ewing's run. I can only imagine that's why she would th- be there. Makes sense. And there was a time when they were trying to find the Infinity Stones, and she was tasked with guarding the, I think, the Power Stone briefly, and they got attacked by the Darkhawks, and she had a kid. Well, we don't see any of that in this issue. We just see her in one flashback panel. And other people we see in this one flashback Hercules. are Hercules. And the last guy is Sever Blackmore, who is a, an odd choice. Blackmore, of course, is that Wolverine villain we last saw taking control of Beast's space prison. Remember him? Uh, now, how exactly this team came together is a story I'm, I'm pretty sure we're never going to hear. Maybe in one old web-only Infinity Comics, but we get one cool panel of, hey, here's a crazy team. And uh, yeah, they're the ones who got the plans to uh, to the base. So Destiny and Storm, both looking quite elderly at this point, 100 years in the future, have a brief but important chat. Our hypothesis last time was correct. Now that Mystique is dead, Destiny has no interest in this timeline continuing to exist. So she now wants to join up with Storm and company to go destroy Sinister's lab, kill that Moira clone, reset the universe. Which makes sense, but I mean, you know, not for nothing, but she and Mystique, had, she, they had a good run, right? They had like yes. 100 years together. That's a lot more, I mean, more than that. That's a lot more than most of us are going to get with our loved ones, so. Yes. Yeah, the aging thing is a little weird for me. I mean, it is, yes, they're they're older, but I'm like, man, the storm at this point has to be like, what, 120, 130? Sure. And whether that's part of her mutant her mutant gene helping her out, or there's technology going forward, doesn't really yeah. matter. She's, she's still alive, but she's old. That's all we need to know. It's also a good time to pause and remember what happened in Storm and the Brotherhood number one. In that story, Storm, Mystique, and Destiny were working together to go destroy Sinister's lab, kill the Moira clone, reset the universe. But in that book, Mystique and Destiny double-crossed Storm, using Storm and the Brotherhood while secretly wanting to preserve the lab and the clone and this universe because they wanted to keep existing together. Uh, so I wonder if anything similar will happen on this issue. <laughs> So that sets up the main action of this book. We're going to have a raid on Orbis Stellaris' base to reset the universe with Korra amping up Destiny's powers so that Destiny can predict all the enemy actions and let a small team overwhelm this huge cosmic power. And this is one of the first things, you know, as I'm reading through here, for the most part at this point, I'm thinking, okay, this is just a Star Wars knockoff. It's not that interesting. There's some decent banter between the characters. And I think this amping up of Destiny's powers and then linking, you know, psychically to the rest of the team so they could be kind of invincible. That was the first time I thought, okay, this is actually pretty cool. This is like a, you know, it's still a Star Wars idea, right? It's using the Force, but um, but it was cool to me. I was like, oh, that's pretty creative. And yeah, and this is a mutant circuit idea, which is something that Al Ewing's been playing with, you know, for a long time now. So it it does tie in with some ideas from from back in uh, X Men Red. Okay, so Orbis Stellaris's base, which is the Death Sphere, ding sound, uh, which is just a giant Orbis Stellaris sphere that now encompasses an entire star system. Well, they basically took the world farm and threw some Orbis Stellaris panels around it. Right. The, the entire, you know, multiple star system, calculate everything, super technological, right, cosmic power, 
that's going to be his asking earlier, to Dominion. You know, how, how does the, the Diamond Faction not know about this? Will they talk about how this new version of the World Farm can actually just kind of go wherever it wants to go? So um, I can r- rationalize it as, you know, they probably never saw this. Because if you did see this, you'd probably be like, okay, that's... Hey, I've seen that guy before, yeah. <laughs> yeah Wasn't exactly. he smaller? <laughs> but I guess that's one of the nice things about this super accelerated timeline where we can just assume a lot of things happen in these hundreds of issues we don't get to see in between issues we do get to see and that can explain a lot we only get to see the bits that we need for the story to make sense to us and i'm okay with that okay so we have three members of the brotherhood set out to blow this up they are flying small attack ships called x fighters ding sound uh so that's an x-wing and a tie fighter and you take those names and you squish them together you get an x fighter they're x-men it all makes sense. Why not? Uh, and these three people are X-Man slash Cable in X-Fighter Gold, Shock Jock in X-Fighter Blue, and Iron Fighter in X-Fighter Red. Now, these colors are a double reference. Again, I'm sure Al Ewing was really chuckling to himself when he wrote this, because in Star Wars, we have the red, blue, and gold X-Wing squadrons, Luke, of course, famously being Red 5, and in X-Men Publishing History, X-Men Gold, X-Men Blue, and X-Men Red, are the three titles used for team books over and over again through the years. So again, kind of fun. Not not important, not necessary to the story, but a, a fun little wink. So long story, kind of shortened. The attack goes well. You know, the whole mutant circuit predicting everybody's actions goes great. Uh, an apparition appears to iron fire inside his X-Fighter. It's Is it, is it Obi-Wan Kenobi telling him to, to trust his feelings? <laughs> Use the force. Not quite, although... <laughs> Turn off the targeting computer. Somebody else is telling him <laughs> to 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 trust his feelings, right? It's it's Storm and Destiny to say, don't think about it. We're sending you what to do uh, because Destiny knows what you should do. So don't think, just trust your feelings. So it's that's happening on one side, but Mother Righteous shows up as a force ghost, more or less. And I'm not exactly sure what her purpose is in this issue, other than to, hey, be a force ghost and remind us that she still exists. But what do you what do you think she's doing here? What did you take from this scene? I think she's trying to influence them to take out Orbis Stellaris. Now, the question I have about that is how is she doing that? She seems to be doing her standard sort of just jabber at you and ask for you to thank her about something. So I don't understand exactly how this plays into her scheming against the other sinister, but that was kind of what I thought was going on here. I don't know how much she knows about Storm's plans because Orbis or Mother Righteous does not want this universe reset. She wants to keep going. She thinks she can get to Dominion before anybody else. And if there's a big reset, she's not bringing any of this information back with her. So she does not want a reset to happen. But uh, yeah, but maybe, she's very maybe clearly she influencing Ironfire. I mean, she talks about how she's basically, you know, just a daydream. It sounds like she's like doing some kind of mind whammy on him, right? So he won't remember I guess this. maybe... Maybe she wants to make him into kind of her agent on the inside of the Brotherhood. And maybe that'll come up again 900 years down the line when we see our next issue. And interestingly, she she asks him about regrets and he talks about, you know, killing somebody during the Genesis War, which I don't think we've we've seen that, right? There's been, so, a, again, a brief reference to the Genesis War in a previous Sins of Sinister issue. So what do you think about that Genesis War idea? Yeah, I, I assume it's Genesis, you know, Apocalypse is Genesis, some sort of conflict that involved them but i'm wondering is it something that'll come up here or is it something that we're gonna get is teasing like for the future right like post sins of sinister yeah that's what i think i think that's most likely is that it's talking about something that's going to happen back in the main timeline that you know for for our characters here has happened in their past 
again, it's it's like talking about the Clone Wars, right? Uh, in Star Wars, they just kind of mention it as a bad thing that's happened in the past, and it doesn't actually get written about and filled out until prequels are written. Now, because of the timeline wonkiness, we can kind of think of future issues in the fall of X as prequels to this sort of kind of maybe. And that's where I think we're going to see Apocalypse and Genesis come back. And I think something called the Genesis War is likely to be a major plot point in the fall of X. And I think that's what we're just kind of gesturing at here. I mean, I would assume, I mean, it's the funky timeline stuff, but I'm guessing, okay, when we get back to the original timeline, you know, five years after that, you could have something like a Genesis War, right? And that could have been this timeline, right? Still happened five years from that last issue. It's just we don't have the sinister takeover. Right. Presumably, Apocalypse and Genesis are coming back in both timelines at some point and seeing whatever version of the world they see when they get back. So there'll be a Genesis war in both places. Okay. Here in Storm and Brotherhood, the attack team gets into the impenetrable death sphere through a small hatch. I did laugh about this part. (laughs) It's not quite the exhaust vent, but again, serves the same purpose. It's what they heard from uh, the Freedom Fighters, Freedom Force. And uh, at that moment of victory, where it seems they're about to destroy the lab, reset the universe, Storm gives an order, and Korra kills Destiny. Destiny had this vision of of a victory and a blackness in the reset of the universe, but it turns out that what she actually saw was the end of her own life, her own universe ending. Now, exactly why Destiny didn't foresee this betrayal is kind of debatable, right? You'd think that Destiny, you can see all this stuff. She probably should have seen that Storm was not entirely on the up and up here. I guess we could say it's her emotional state at the death of Mystique. It Maybe it has something to do with this mutant circuit. Her, she was so focused on calculating these tactical things. But ultimately, it happened because Al Ewing made it happen for the story to work. Well, she's not omnipotent. I'm, I was okay with this part, right? Like, sometimes she sees things, doesn't really know exactly why she sees them, right? She has to interpret it. That's part of having a prophet in any fictional story, right? They, You can make them be, you know, completely unbeatable when you want them to be unbeatable. But then for the story to happen, sometimes you have to make them make a mistake. So she saw basically how to get onto the base, and then she saw star thing and then she saw darkness she didn't see Korra behind her with a giant sword ready to go right through her head correct the bit that was a little weird to me was when they talk about needing to do it this way so that she doesn't send a message back to herself that that part didn't make any sense to me i I thought they were like maybe trying to explain her powers in a way that I never understood them to work. Yeah, Destiny's powers are always always kind of hand-waving. Again, for the same reason that fictional prophets have to be a little bit hand-wavy. Yeah, so this is basically, you know, ha- we know they're talking about it had to, or Painless, I hope, had to be if she had even an instant to form a thought, she'd have sent it back to herself and said the darkness. So is that how her power works? Basically, her, her present self is sending messages back to all of the other I've destinies. I've never thought of it that way, but I mean, she's seen things that happened after her death, right? Yeah. So she saw the Krakoa rising, and yes. that happened long after she was dead and hadn't been brought back yet. So yeah. unless the idea is that she was brought back, so then her brought back self could send it back. Yeah. Timey, that, yeah. wimey prophecy. It gets really weird. Really I matter. think maybe with Destiny, but you're better off not trying to explain how it works. But it's an interesting idea. I mean, it it's kind of cool, it and it's an attempt to Maybe they've done this before, but I've never seen, you know, somebody try to explain how that power works. Okay, so here in this story, 
uh, we thought they were going to blow up the lab, reset the universe. Instead, Storm casts a big old Deus, De- Deus Ex Machina spell, if I can speak, to open up a wormhole and throw the lab and cable and shock jock and iron fire over to, quote, the far edges of the galaxy, where I guess we assume it'll be safely hidden for at least 900 years. Uh, and in this process, Storm herself die. It seems to be a necessary part of the spell. My part of it, she says, I offer you fire and a life incarnate. And that's where our book ends. The universe is still going. We kind of figured it would be. And the Sinister's lab full of, you know, Moira's and the head of Dark Beast and that uh, magic button that's going to kill off all the Sinister's with the diamonds on their foreheads, that's all thrown to some remote corner of the universe. And that's our final look at the year 100, although we, I think we still have a lot to talk about on this issue. Like, for instance, uh, Orbis Thalaris. The last we see of him in this book, and in the year 100, on page 21 of your digital edition, is him seeing that he's lost, right? Sinister's lab has been stolen through the wormhole. He's lost all this information that was going to bring him into Dominion. Uh, what's he going to do? One of his officers, who's a Skrull, says to him, Overlord, surely something can be done. And Orbis Stellaris, still inside the sphere, we don't, we don't see the old guy inside, we just see the outside of his little mini-sphere. He says, you're right, something can always be done. Computer, switch off life support. Now, we don't see the aftermath of this. Whose life support is he referring to? Is he saying, I lost, I'm going to kill myself? Or is he killing off all his subordinates here and trying a new plan? What? How did you interpret this? Yeah, I took it as him giving up and offing himself because I would take two of the four off the table, right? It would. And we already saw the um, Dr. Stasis one get taken out in the year 10, right? We did. So I think this is, you know, get rid of this one. Now we're down to Mother Righteous and Classic. That would narrow things down for our, our final confrontation, whatever that's going to be, of our various sinisters vying to you know achieve Dominion. But it did seem for a major character to just kind of disappear so quickly and quietly and with no real pomp and circumstance. You just, oh, switch off life support, and then it's just done. We don't even, again, we don't even see his face in this issue. We only see his sphere. So I'm sure we'll find out what happened to him in one of our future issues, but it, it felt a, a little confusing there. Yeah. And especially with Storm dying after this, for, I, you know, I don't think this is the real interpretation, but at least it's debatable. You know, she was in a chair that kind of looked like the 90s Xavier chair, and maybe that was, you know, what was keeping her alive. And is this him, like, turning off her life support? Has he, like, infiltrated them somehow? But I didn't read it that way. I know he's you know, super cosmic powers and things. I don't think he has any kind of connection back to kill off Storm. I, I really think Storm's death was her choosing Old to Asian. use this power. Yeah it's, yeah, it's again, you could even call this a reference to Obi-Wan Kenobi on the original Death Star and A New Hope, you know, sacrificing himself for the good of the mission. That's maybe a little more of a stretch than the other references, but, you know, if I'm thinking Star Wars the whole time, that's what I'm going to think of. And speaking of Storm, we need to talk about why she makes this choice, right? Back in the previous issue, she was all gung-ho, as far as we could tell, to actually reset this universe. But here... It's, I think it's, it's really well done. The more I think about it, the more I like it. She says that this timeline, the Sinister Sinister timeline, exists, right? It is reality to her. For her, it's not an alternate timeline. It is reality. It's existed for a hundred years. Countless people and other beings have lived and died in this universe. Sure, it's not perfect, but she even says that she's not going to murder this universe 
to reset it and roll the dice again, right? And I think this works very well with what we know of Storm's character in this era. Back in the main timeline in X-Men Red, she also rejected mutant resurrection yes. for kind yeah, of political reasons yep. and other things. But it's like she was making a stand, making a moral point to kind of reject some of the easy comic book ways out, right? In you, know, you die on, on Krakoan era, doesn't really matter. You get brought back five minutes later, back to your sexiest self. Here, oh, you kill off a Moira and reset the whole universe. Why not? But she's the one character saying, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to undo all of reality just to make this comic book story work. Or for my preferences, right? Yes. And it, it very much, to me, embodies her as an Iraqi, you know, buying into their philosophy of, you know, one life, live, you know, make the most of it. None of this sort of resurrection stuff. So, yeah, at first I was like, why? And then I was like, you know what? I actually like it. It works really well for her character and um, somewhat powerful, right? Absolutely, yeah. Very, very well done. Now, what did you think of her having these giant magic powers? I, I'm okay with it. Like they, it, so I didn't look at it no, so much as magic as more as like an overcharged weather power, where it's basically like, because all she does is open a wormhole, right? And so she's been. I don't know about that. That seems that seems more of a stretch than magic. Like, what is weather? Right? Is it nature? Is it you know the forces within space? You know. Mm-hmm. So. If you say it is a force, you know, all of that is a force within space. And if she's supercharged, I could see her accessing that kind of capacity. I, I read this as her specifically saying it's not her mutant powers. Let, let's, let's quote her here for a, a second. A reference to her mother and all that. I don't right. know her background enough to know, like, you know, is she from a magic There has been family. references to her being, having magic in her blood here and there. It's never been a huge part of her character as far as I know, but it's, it's not completely out of nowhere. Yeah. Right? She says, to be an Omega-level mutant is to be without limit, but there are limits beyond limits. Okay, Al Ewing, fine. We'll go with it. <laughs> powers beyond powers that I am also heir to, for they do not call me the old witch without cause. My mother was a sorceress from a sorceress line. Her blood is in, in me, etc., etc. And that's why I think it's going to be a magical spell that's yeah. not so much of her, or at least magic working with her cosmic storm powers. Sure. Now. It's not completely out of nowhere, but it does seem just super convenient. We haven't had any hint that she was going to do this, that she had this ability. And it's just, we need to save this progenitor farm. We need to save the world farm, save the lab. I guess we don't save the world farm. That that dies. But we need to save Sinister's lab. And she just, boom, has the power, uses the power, and dies. A little too convenient. One of the things where, again, if we had lots and lots of issues filling in the blanks, there probably would have been hints of it along the way. And this felt a little a little cheap, a little like a cheat. Really, the only big criticism I have of the plotting this issue is, is yeah, that, that one major incident, which is a, a super major incident, did not really feel like it had been set up sufficiently. Yeah. I laughed when Orvis was saying, you know, my life's work destroyed by a blasted magic spell. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I know so many uh, fans of comics just hate the you know, MacGuffin hand wave magic. <laughs> I, I guess I'm with Orbis Dolores here a little bit, yeah. <laughs> and that's why he offed himself. He's like, F this. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm out. This Everyone says, oh, this is the book that made me stop collecting X-Men comics. I guess <laughs> yes. Orbis Dolores, this is what broke him. Okay, well, uh, yeah, I think that wraps up most of what I want to say about this book. Uh, the art here, I thought, was, was, was fine. It was sufficient. It wasn't as, as notable... I want to gush over it like I did for Immoral X-Men. 
I thought yeah. the cosmic space battles seemed kind of lame. We just have these gold spheres with red lasers missing all their targets. I thought that yeah. could look cooler. Yeah. I thought the magical wormhole spell was probably the coolest artistic bit. You know, some nice swirly colors, magic, 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 glowy, glowy, glowy. That was kind of cool. But yeah, the, the art the art here was, it certainly didn't get in the way of anything. That had no place to maybe go, ooh, yuck, that face doesn't look good. But it didn't also, there's not pages here I want to go back and, and linger over again the way I, I sometimes do with, with this artist. Yeah, I want to say I was really irritated by the deep, deep Star Wars references in this story. Okay. And in the end, it actually, I thought, was a really effective mechanic, at least for me as a reader, because, you know, Star Wars is such a, a cultural thing. And I know I'm the guy that forgot Han Solo's name, but, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I, despite, you know, having bad memory at times, I definitely know that plot so well, right? Like you just know all the scenes. And I think, especially guys of, you know, 80s, 90s vintage, just, eat and breathe the story, right? For sure. I mean, when when I was a little kid, when we get together with other kids to play, it wasn't a question of what are we going to play? We're playing Star Wars. The yeah. only issue was who gets to be Han Solo. That's what we argued over. But we were definitely, <laughs> kids get together in the mid 80s, you know, to hang around and play in the backyard. We're going to play Star Wars. It's the only thing. Yeah. But this is, you know, this is very familiar story. So I'm reading it and I'm kind of getting annoyed as I'm reading it. I'm like, this is just him thinking he's being really clever by doing all these, you know, not subtle Star Wars references. And I know how that story goes, right? So I'm reading it and I'm like, okay, yeah, they get through the, you know, the security hatch and there's mm -hmm. whatever, right? It ends with an explosion and then everybody gets a medal except the Wookiee. That's how the story yeah, ends. Yeah, yeah. But because I'm so familiar with the story, I actually was surprised by the twist, which is kind of funny because, you know, this is what, sixth or seventh issue in like a 12 issue yep. seventh series. I should not have been like, oh yeah, and then they reset the timeline, right? Like that would make no sense. But I am so familiar with the way Star Wars plays out that I'm all reading the, all it. All the and next I'm like, issues are just blank. Ha -ha, we <laughs> yeah, got exactly. They're just so I say, hey, like really good job. At least for me, I sort of expected this to be like, okay, and then they win, right? Because that's what happens in Star Wars. And for a moment, and then I get the page turn, right? Where Destiny gets killed. And I was like, oh, wow, it actually surprised me. And, you know, my score went probably from a six to an eight with that, just because, you know, I was so familiar with this base underlying story and was suck suckered into thinking this is just a duplicate of that, that I, I didn't see Al the twist. Al a clever guy, but some writers just kind of get caught up by their own cleverness and forget to actually tell a story. I think yeah. Al Ewing uses us being led astray by Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars to give us that twist and, you know, lead us make us off balance or make us think we know what's going to happen like you said but then give us give us that tweet that makes me go oh yeah he had he had a plan all along because before i was like this is lazy writing right like this is al ewing dialing it in because he you know this is the easiest plot to write right you just copy another movie and reskin it with x-men stuff and there you go but he really he uses it to his own end in a more creative way which which i really yes. liked yeah, so overall, put it all together, a fun story with, again, I think that one that one flaw of the, the, the big old spell, decent art. I guess I'm going to call this book 8.3 out of 10. You're the same kind of vicinity, it sounds like? Yeah, I'm in the 8, eight range. I mean, this is not the greatest story ever, but it keeps mm -hmm. the plot going and, you know, some interesting developments. I'm curious what the Genesis War is. Sure. You know, I'm curious to see now the final Mother Righteous versus classic Nathaniel Essex fight. And actually, I'm very 
intrigued, you know, I, I guess maybe I was slightly intrigued like what would like a thousand years from this date look like anyways. But now that we're kind of getting rid of this generic Star Wars kind of story, I'm really curious even like what the next issue of Brotherhood's going to be like. I mean, we don't even have Storm, right? How do you write a Storm in the Brotherhood of Mutant Story without her? Storm doesn't die in X-Men comics. That is a good point. She makes a whole point about that, it's, right? It's a, it's a big point that she hasn't really died. And he, I mean, again, it's going to be reset. We know it's going to be reset, but it's still a pretty big deal to see Storm die on panel in an X-Men book. And as, as far as, you know, suggesting people read this or not read this, I mean, look, if, so if you're reading Sins or Sinister, you're reading this book, of course. And if you're not yes. reading Sins or Sinister, don't start here. That would be confusing. <laughs> sure. If, if, if you're, if all you are is a giant Star Wars fan and want to see Star Wars redone kind of with X-Men characters, pick up this book. But yeah, if, if, yeah. if it sounds like fun, go back to a uh, Sinister Sinister number one and, and see how we got here. But yeah, a, a fun book and I'm looking forward to what happens going forward. Now, next week, we have a week off from Sins of Sinister. That's been our pattern. Three weeks on, one week off. And next week, the only book that we are covering is Sabretooth and the Exiles number five of five, the last issue of that book, which is a book we kind of liked at first. And I think, safe to say, didn't like it so much it was going on, but let's hope that Victor Laval ends it strong. I'm, I'm sure that you and I will find something to talk about. I was looking at, you know, what's being published, and I was wondering if you knew anything about <laughs> X-Men Unforgiven number one. Oh, was that the Tim Seeley book? Yeah, is this like a vampire X-Men he's, thing? He's doing a thing where he has, I think the first book was Unforgiven Spider-Man, and there's uh -huh. Unforgiven X-Men, and there'll be Unforgiven One More Character. It's one of those things where they're trying to say uh, make a mini-series of all number ones. I think uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur did this recently, where it's it's so this not is like really... issue number two of a of a standalone miniseries. Yes, I believe that's that's what it is. So I don't think it really okay. ties in at all with what we're talking about. Got it. Uh, I'm sure I'll check it out. It, well, we'll talk about some of those books next week. Definitely Sabretooth and the Exiles, and and maybe some of the others. But until then, Ruben, what is it that we say at the end of every episode? Yeah, go read more X Men comics, and may the X Force be with you. Oh, oh my God. <laughs>